Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast day to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Calvary. Thank you for joining us in our live stream service today. Perhaps you are uh, tuning in for maybe the very first time. Uh, If so, uh, my name is Johnny, and I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary. And if it is your first time here, um, I do hope when the time comes and we can all regather that I have the opportunity to meet you. But again, thank you for joining us, and thank you, the rest of the Calvary family, uh, for your continued faithful uh, online presence and sticking through us during this season. Um, so just want to thank you for joining us this morning. Um, 
I, I wish I could say uh, to you all that I did not think about calling Gerald about 10 times in the last 48 hours uh, to tell him that I was not going to preach today. Um, that is the coward in me. Um, but in God's mercy and God's grace and the power of the Spirit, um, we are here and it has been uh, just encouraging for me um, to be able to kind of join voices with our worship team this morning from the very first words of Chris throughout the, the entire service. And so um, I'm thankful for God's strength uh, to bring us all here this morning. I want to give you a little bit of a roadmap of where I'll be going uh, in our, my sermon here this morning. We are going to look at four scenes. Three of the scenes are recorded in the Bible. And one of the scenes is current. The first scene will be, along with our series and where we're at, the first scene will be when Israel, with the leadership of Moses' brother Aaron, built a golden calf to worship. The text uh, that Desiree just read for us. The second scene um, will be going back to the Garden of Eden. One of the things we'll notice as the story continues in our series are so many times where we have to go back and refer to the Garden of Eden to help make clearest sense of where the story is at and where we're at in the story. The third scene will be 38th Street and Chicago Avenue in South Minneapolis on Memorial Day in 2020 where George Floyd was murdered. The fourth scene will be Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on his way to his execution. I think there are two themes that are perpetually running through all four of those scenes. And that is the one theme of human betrayal and failures and injustice and God's love and mercy and faithfulness. As many of you know, we are in the middle of a sermon series titled, All Things New, the story of the Bible and the healing of the world. We are taking a long journey uh, through the unified story of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. On a side note, one of the amazing things about the Bible is its beautiful unity. The Bible, with all of its layers and complexity and varied themes, also has, in a sense, a simple, beautiful unity. The main theme that is guiding us through this series that we are currently in is God's plan to heal our world. Again, the main theme that is guiding us throughout this series that we're in is God's plan to heal our world. So we are asking the question throughout this series, from story to stories, how does the Bible tell the story of God's plan to heal our world? And it seems that this question is constantly being perpetually relevant from month to month in our series, whether it's related to the COVID-19 situation or now our ongoing expressions of racial injustice. 
We are longing for God's healing in this world. The prayer we call the Lord's Prayer is actually focused on this healing. Jesus prayed that God's kingdom come and God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so Jesus taught us to pray that heaven would heal the earth. So far, we've gone through the entire book, first book of the Bible, Genesis. We are now in our series toward the end of the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. And no doubt you are thinking that we are not moving at a super fast pace, but understand that these first two books of the Bible are so crucial to understanding the continuing themes throughout the rest of the Bible. And so I promise that it will start to pick up soon here. We will make it through the series, I promise. We saw in Genesis the beautiful and amazing world that God created was corrupted. God, in his mercy, though, commits to healing this corrupted world. God's plan to heal the world, as we see in Genesis then, is going to be accomplished through Abraham's family. That's a crucial piece to understand, that God is committing to heal the world through Abraham's family. And that is why Abraham's ongoing family takes up so much of the attention of the Bible. This promise by God to Abraham then was extended through Abraham's son, Isaac, and, and Abraham's grandson then, Jacob. And this is where we get at the end of the book of Genesis. And yet when we open the pages of the book of Exodus, we find Jacob's family in bondage. The family that God is going to use to heal our world is in bondage in Egypt, which would naturally bring up a lot of questions about the integrity of God's plan. But God then uses Moses and Aaron, who are great, great grandsons of Jacob, to rescue the people of Israel out of their bondage from Egypt. And God reignites his plan to heal the world as again through Abraham's lineage. And so after delivering Israel from Egypt, God brings them out of Egypt to Mount Sinai. And this is a very intimate and precious moment for Israel as God is going to establish for them how life together will be with God as their true king. It is at Mount Sinai that God formally reaffirms to Israel that he is committed to them and through them to heal the world. You can read about that formal uh, reaffirmation of God's covenant commitment to them in chapter 19 and 24 of Exodus. And so Moses is up in the mountain, at the mountaintop, with God, as God's giving him the instructions for life with him. And so Moses is given these instructions. He's given the Ten Commandments. He's given various laws. 
God is even giving Moses the instructions on how to build a tabernacle, which is simply to say that God, given everything that's already gone on in the story of scriptures, is still committed to being present with Israel. The tabernacle at the very core is God reaffirming to Moses and to Israel, I will be with you. And so we see that we are get, Moses is given this instructions so that God can localize himself with the people of Israel. And then at the end of all these instructions, some laws, the tabernacle, God gifts them with rest. Take it easy. Relax. And we see at the end, toward the end of chapter 31 of Exodus, God says, Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, rest, observing the rest throughout their generations as a covenant forever. Part of this covenant forever was symbolized that God said, Relax, rest, catch your breath. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in the six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. What a merciful and gracious God. He could have given up on humanity so long ago but continues to be localized and present with them and even says to his people through Moses, even I took the seventh day off to be refreshed, and I also want to gift you with a weekly commitment to be refreshed, to rest. This sounds like an amazing God. And you would imagine, as we read from chapter 19 all the way up to 31, at least two occasions where we see Israel's response. And their response is what you would think it would be. They tell Moses in response, we will do everything that the Lord commands us. Who wouldn't? He's giving them laws and instructions. He's giving them his presence. He's giving them rest with a promise to do amazing things through them. And so they appropriately say, Moses, we will do everything that the Lord instructs us. But then we get to chapter 32. This is our first scene. We are now caught up to our present scene and where we're at in our series and in the story. And all of a sudden, the people of Israel are starting to wonder, where is Moses? Where is he? What is he doing? Well, the people gathered, as Desiree read for us, gathered together and in their skepticism about where Moses was, told Moses' brother Aaron and said, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so Aaron, as we see in verses 3 and 4 and verse 5, goes ahead and says, Take off all your gold jewelry and make for them a golden calf to worship. And says, which is so ironic, the inability to see the confusion as he's building this golden calf to worship, he says, 
Tomorrow, as we worship this calf, we will feast to the Lord. How? How does he not see that contradiction? You're building the golden calf to worship, and yet you're going to feast to the Lord. Already we see the disconnection, the confusion. This would be like infidelity on the honeymoon. God affirms his covenant with Israel. And while they're still on the honeymoon, we see unfaithfulness from the people of Israel. What's interesting to notice, though, is sometimes we just think of this sin of Israel as just a bad decision. They, they committed a sin that they need to ask for forgiveness of. But I think an actually really stark way to think about it is betrayal. They betrayed God. They corrupted themselves, the Lord says. They turned away quickly. And the Lord even says, they made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it. As he is right, just finishing his instructions to Moses about how he's going to be present with them. He hardly finishes, the Lord hardly finishes his sentence with Moses and says, they have corrupted themselves and turned away quickly. They have made for some, themselves a golden calf and are worshiping and sacrificing to it. And they're saying, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The mighty act of God to bring Israel out of Egypt is now being attributed to the God of the golden calf. This is betrayal. And so the Lord, his wrath burned hot against Israel and said he was done with them. One interesting thing to note in scripture is that there's a number of times where God sets out wrath and changes his mind. But as it is with redemption, God never changes his mind once he commits to redemption. And Moses, interestingly, implores with God and interacts with the Lord and says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or Jacob, your servants, who you swore by your own self. Moses implores with the Lord and says, remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel. And what happens? The Lord relented. He pulled back from his wrath that he had spoken of bringing and instead continues with his commitment of redemption and grace and forgiveness with Israel in spite of their infidelity on the honeymoon. And so how do we respond to this as we read this story? I, I think if we're honest, it's probably hard to have sympathy for someone who cheats on their spouse on their honeymoon. Our immediate reaction, I think, at least for me, is to completely distance myself from the people of Israel and to kind of put them in a box and look at them and say, man, how messed up are they? We would never do that. But the more we tell ourselves that we are the type of person who would never be as bad as the next, the 
further we walk away from the grace and mercy of God. We have this perpetual pattern in ourselves as human beings that when we see injustice and brokenness and sin and wickedness, we have this propensity and pattern to say that's so bad and I would never do that. But the moment we do that, we walk away from the grace and mercy of God. And we become our own saviors left to save ourselves. I want to take us to the next scene, the Garden of Eden. There are so many fascinating connections between the Garden of Eden and what's God, this new work God is doing with Israel in Exodus. I'm not going to go through all of the connections between the Garden of Eden and Tabernacle, but let me just suffice it to say this that the tabernacle is like a recreation of the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, as God created it, in the early chapters of Genesis, God made this, again, beautiful and majestic creation. Within this vast, amazing world God made, he created this beautiful city called Eden. Within Eden was this even more amazing garden. So you have this vast world that God creates. He creates this city, Eden. And then within the Eden, he creates literally a sanctuary for Adam and Eve. The Garden of Eden was created by God specifically for Adam and Eve so that he would have a place to have a relationship with them and be with them. And so it's no wonder when we look at the construction and the, the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle that there are tons of connections between the Garden of Eden and the tabernacle. Then what happens? God sets up this perfect sanctuary garden for Adam and Eve to be priest kings and to rule. And it's ha the mission for Adam and Eve, as you see in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, is to take this garden and extend it to the ends of the earth. But what happens? Betrayal. Once again, betrayal. Sometimes I, I think, I don't really think, again, from the perspective of betrayal when I think of Adam and Eve's sin. I just think of Adam and Eve's sin affects me. But I don't always think of it in relation to the betrayal of their creator. Adam and Eve betrayed God. And how do I respond to this? Unfortunately, I oftentimes respond the same way I re respond when I read the story of the golden calf. I look at Adam and Eve and I distance myself from them. And I only can think about how they ruined it for us all. We can think, wow, what failures. They had everything perfectly set up for them perfectly set up for them. And they still could not obey God. I can't believe this. Let me reiterate from the first scene that the more 
we try to self-vindicate. And the more we try to distance ourselves from the brokenness of our fellow human beings, the farther we walk away from the grace and the mercy of God. And the fascinating thing for us is that perpetually in the midst of the brokenness, the grace and mercy of God is present for us. I want to take you to the third scene. 38th Avenue and Chicago Avenue in South Minneapolis where on May 25th, which is ironically Memorial Day, George Floyd was murdered by a police officer. I'm taking us to this scene because this scene once again represents us with a choice. In the video, we see a human being betraying God, cold-bloodedly taking the life of God's own image bearer. This atrocious crime reveals to us not just a one-time event or a one-time situation. Unfortunately, this life that was taken, the image of God, reveals to us a long history of violence toward black lives in our country. But it's not just historic, as we now know. It's multi-layered realities of inequality, both historically and presently. And I am noticing, even in myself, that this murder in particular is waking up many within the white community to the evidence of the lack of value extended to the lives of those within the black community. And as Christians, we, we should be appalled and grieved that black lives would be given any other treatment than what is deserved for those made in the image of God. But what's unfortunate is for me and those like me, it should not have taken this long. It should not have taken such an obvious and heinous act for us to be honest with the injustice and the brokenness in our communities and our country. I wish I could say long time ago when I figured all this out. But unfortunately, my own story is one that has readily accessed the privilege to decide when I want to be affected by the systemic racism in our country and when I don't. That's my story. It should not have taken a cold-blooded murder to finally say we can see the evidences of racism in our country. And the black community is even hearing me say this, I'm sure, and thinking it is so crazy that it wasn't seen. It's not as if it wasn't told to us. We just chose not to believe. I would like to share with you uh, writing that my wife, Christine, wrote up. 
partly because I think it reflects both of us so well. It reflects me so well. And I hope, I genuinely hope, for those listening that identify with the white community, that this will give you words and language also to move forward as you process. I will say this isn't short, (laughs) so stay with me. She writes, I'm wrestling with not wanting to be too honest on social media. Honest enough to show I am really doing the work, but not so honest that you actually see the ugly parts, which equals pride and leads to deadness in my heart and soul. I do sincerely, I also sincerely do not want to add any more injury to those black friends who feel any amount of safety or trust with me, which equals that is love and leads to life. But I have racism in my heart and mind. I am horrified by what I see in myself when I am brave enough to take even small glimpses at my core beliefs about myself and others. I cringe at core beliefs and statements and actions that I have had that have harmed others. And I am humbled by the people and experiences God has used to chip away at the clay over my eyes and in my heart that allows me to be blind and ignorant of others' perspectives and experiences. I still have clay in my eyes and heart. My heart still has pride, fear, and self-preservation. The healthiest part of me is writing this to ask my white friends and family and church family to join me in having the humanity to not only listen to our black community's pain and grief and cry for justice, but also the humility to look ourselves in the mirror and ask God to help us see the gross parts so he can help us find our own life by changing ourselves and loving ourselves better through words and action. In elementary school, I was fascinated by Harriet Tubman. I remember being amazed by her courage and bravery as she stood up for herself to white men who enslaved her and risked her life for others still enslaved and being horrified by the mean men who enslaved others that abused and attacked her as a little girl and hunted her like she was a wild animal. My understanding as a little girl was that this time in history was long ago horrible and over. I made little connection to that time period and the current racial tensions and inequity in my own community in South Bend, Indiana. I didn't make that connection for way too long. I remember saying in the early 2000s that work toward racial equality and equity and justice wasn't truly needed anymore. After all, we do have a black president. And those examples of racism in our country are individual incidences of racism from extremists close to the ideology of KKK. Most of our country had progressed past racism and inequity. I assumed that my understanding of the history of our country was comprehensive and did not take time to consider that others may have different experiences within my country than I was aware of. This is important. When we have generally experienced acceptance, safety, and opportunity, and being in the in-group, we can't know what it is like to not have that experience. And we often don't have much empathy for that experience. Worse, we don't believe people when they try to tell us 
This is pride, arrogance, and apathy. I repent. Shamefully, I remember telling a racist joke in a group of people where it personally impacted one of the people in the group. I watched as the pain hit his face and I realized I had harmed him. And we use stereotypes in any way, including in humor. It's racist, especially when it pokes at a marginalized identity in some way or depicts them as other. This is important. I was normalizing my whiteness and pointing at another identity as other and therefore something to joke about. This was callous, unloving, and harmful. I repent of this. This paragraph feels like death to write, but I know it is best for me and my community to name it and reject it. I've wrestled hard with white saviorism, assuming that I didn't create the problem, but that I can rescue the victims of racism, white supremacy, and systems of oppression. First, I have to, had to realize that I have mostly met survivors who are strong and more resilient than me and have as much to offer me as I could hope to offer them. Second, I am part of the problem and need to keep doing that work inside myself. Also, I can be part of the solution, but only in humility as I acknowledge my own part and limitations and as a and I as allow others to lead me to help in ways that are actually helpful and not assume that I know. Our black community needs the white community to help fight the individual racism in our own hearts and the systemic racism in our countries, in our communities, schools, churches, and country. We, the white community, need the black community to help us fight to expand the love in our hearts and humanity in our souls do black people also potentially have prejudice, hatred, selfishness, contempt, and fear? Of course. But I see the black community addressing this themselves. And it would be wrong for the abuser to call out the survivor. This moment is about generational systemics. And we need to take the log out of our own white eyes, not point at the speck in another's community. When we choose to look away to avoid the pain of acknowledging that a black man was murdered and that this murder is a symptom and example of much deeper realities of injustice and violence and dehumanizing, devaluing, suspicious way that we as a country and as individuals view black men, we lose our humanity. When I think this way, my heart is hardened, my eyes are blinded, and chains of self-preservation and self-centeredness hold me captive. As I lean into God-given value, dignity, and respect that everybody holds and act in love, life is breathed into my heart, clay is removed from my eyes, and I find more freedom from the chains of apathy and self-centeredness, pride and arrogance and fear. White friends and family, I love you. Let's look in the mirror together and help one another find life. Black friends and family, I love you. I am listening and learning. This is wrong, and I'm so very sorry for the pain and suffering you are experiencing no longer. We can no longer act as if the voices of our brothers and sisters in Christ in the black community are telling a fairy tale. We must now acknowledge their fear their pain, and their anger. There's a few things that I think we see 
in what she has written. The first thing is to listen. We have to listen. We can't assume we have all the answers and all the perspectives how to frame all of this up. Our own brothers and sisters in Christ need to be heard within the black community. And then we need to be willing, as Christine exampled for us, confession. Confession. And the last thing we need to do is engage. Be willing to learn. Be willing to understand. Develop relationships. Be willing to look out for resources for education. I know myself at this point, I don't love putting posts on Facebook, but I'm committed for the foreseeable future to be making regular posts on Facebook that provide myself and those that are see my Facebook posts with resources. This is another, as I said at the beginning of this third scene, another opportunity and choice for us to do the human tendency of walking away from Adam and Eve and walking away from Israel and walking away and acting as if we are not the problem. I can't believe that cop did that. Do you believe the grace of God is strong enough for you to be able to actually say, I see part of that cop in me? Racism doesn't just equate to cold-blooded killing. There could be so many things in the heart of that one person that commits an obvious act of racism that can be these smaller realities that are hard to see that can exist in all of us if we're not willing to see it and to say it as it is. But we cannot do that alone. None of us can do that alone. We must be willing particularly within the white community, to do that together. And we can't get distracted by the riots. It's it's easy for us now then to turn all of our attention to the riots and the damage being done. I can't speak for every person rioting. But as a whole, if we think the riots are the greatest tragedy, then we are treating the symptoms, not the disease. There is a disease that exists And the ride is just a simple symptom of it. It is not the disease itself. And if we don't like the rioting, if we don't like the physical damage that's done by the rioting, it doesn't mean that our only other option is silence. If we don't like the means of protesting through riots, then let's find our voice in protesting in ways that we think is helpful and that we think creates advocacy and understanding. Use whatever voice you have to protest in a way that you think is best. It doesn't have to be rioting or nothing. You don't have to let people who protest differently than you completely quiet you. Let's speak together. But this requires us to believe that the grace of God is strong enough that if we walk down that hard path toward the cop, toward Israel, and toward Adam and Eve, that we will find life and grace. The last scene is Jesus 
in the Garden of Eden. I don't think it is just simply coincidental that the authors of the gospel talk about Jesus before he goes to the cross at the Garden of Gethsemane. It is there in the Garden of Gethsemane that typifies the goal of creation to go back to the garden, the new garden of Eden, the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. That Jesus, doing by the power of the Spirit all that we could not do, all that Israel could not do, all that Adam and Eve could not do. And what's so amazing about Jesus is that even though he would be the one person Jesus of Nazareth would be the one person that could absolutely walk away from the brokenness seen in the Garden of Eden and at the base of Mount Sinai. He'd be the one person that would be legitimate and walking away from that and saying, that is not me and I want nothing to do with it. But instead, Jesus, as he prays to his Father, not my will, but your will be done, Jesus walks directly toward the garden. Jesus walks directly toward the golden calf and gives us then, through him, the power to do the same. In Jesus, in Jesus, we have the opportunity to admit that we are broken and we need the mercy of God. I think it is actually nothing out there in the world that can make, in particular, the white community to have the courage to walk toward their own brokenness because we have Jesus. And in Jesus, when we experience forgiveness of sins, In Jesus, we can then go with him and the spirit, his spirit that he gives to us to then do the same thing he would do. Go to the hard places. Be willing to see the things we don't want to see. Jesus' life was characterized by walking into the brokenness which gives us the pathway to follow him. These are troubling times, no doubt. And to my friends within the black community, I'm sorry that it has taken me and many like me so long to feel the need to finally speak. You have been more gracious than we deserve. But may in God's strength, we as Calvary Memorial Church work together. We have a cross that explains that our Lord did the hard work for us so that we could do the hard work too. In closing, I put before you to choose life. Sometimes choosing life means walking toward a direction that doesn't always feel like life. But that's particularly what Jesus did. He walked toward the cross for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. And may we have the strength to do the same thing. Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, left to ourselves, we would be completely lost. And unfortunately, even with you, we feel more lost than we want to admit. But may we refocus our eyes toward you to give us the strength and the courage to not think that Adam and Eve and the people of Israel, as they worship the golden calf, are way worse than we ever would be and thus run from grace in life. Father, may we realize that Adam and Eve's story and the people of Israel's story is our story if it wasn't for your son. And in your son, all things can be made new. We can be forgiven of our sins and be given the life of your spirit to be then ambassadors of life and hope and courage and justice. May it be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.